welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Summary. So I will start, Vishal, by just saying, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing good today, James. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, sir. Very well. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Vishal? I am in Singapore right now. It's not sunny anymore uh, because it's ten. Uh, it's almost ten past ten at night. But if oh, wow. we would have had the podcast in the morning, it would be bright and sunny and no oh. snow at all. And I'm sure you will be experiencing <laughs> some snow where you are right now. So yeah, I think I think we will be. I was saying to uh, my partner Jessa or my co-founder and partner Jess earlier. Um, I was mm-hmm. I was saying that it's just it's just been so cold for so long now. And there's still so much of winter yeah. to go. It's just that, that point of the winter where you're like, oh, no, we're only halfway through. Uh, no, so I am I am very jealous of your climate that you get over Singapore. And in fact, your health tech scene. You have a very vibrant health tech scene or certainly increasingly vibrant in Singapore, right? Indeed, indeed. It, it is growing uh, exponentially. And especially what has happened in the last three to five years you will see more and more health tech, healthcare companies coming out of uh, uh, Singapore as well. So, you know, absolutely what you're saying is is spot on. Uh, yeah, a lot more companies, a lot more infrastructure. It's exciting times. Yeah, yeah, and no, I, I agree with you. I, I think it's a combination of the willingness, um, uh, infrastructure, uh, and uh, at the same time, the willingness of uh, entrepreneurs to take that plunge. If, if I keep talking about... Uh, the thought process that it takes for an entrepreneur to make that plunge. Uh, we could have a separate podcast altogether for that, <laughs> but it's it's amazing uh, the how how much of uh, uh, how much of guts you need uh, to take mm. that plunge, right? Uh, and especially in the in the mindset, in the Asian mindset uh, versus mm. versus the Western mindset. Yeah, and it'd be good to hear more about your process through taking that plunge actually so it'd be great in fact for our listeners uh if you could tell us a bit about your story yeah no i mean my my story starts all the way from 1945 not that i was born in 1945 excellent but my my grandfather uh he was from burma uh this was pre uh independence in india um and uh, he decided to leave Burma, move to India, uh, and he actually registered himself as a pharmacist in India uh, before independence. Um, and uh, the, lo- long story short, he ended up opening up a register. He ended up opening up a chain of pharmacy in India. Uh, this was in seventies. Uh, 1970s and bear in mind this was like 20 years after independence so you can imagine the kind of India that it was at that time yeah Uh, my father uh, took it over from him uh, after uh, he after my grandfather retired Uh, and when I was uh, eight years old uh, or say six to eight years old you know how it is in India Um, it is expected for the kids to uh, not sit at home and watch television Mm. Uh, but uh, go and help their parents uh, during summer vacations um, and see how where, where life takes you, right? Um, and that's where it, I really picked it up. Um, I was eight years old. I still remember 
uh, I still remember one individual that came over, a patient that came over and said, I want yellow color tablets and I want pink color tablets. Um, and at the age of eight, you wouldn't understand the, the significance of that. But um, when, when I grew up a little bit, I asked my father, why does he keep on asking about different colors of tablet? Does it not have a name um, that, that he's looking at? I said, just because they are not literate uh, in the sense of asking for the name of the medication. Um, and uh, they depend on the color of the tablets. Uh, um, and, and some other instances where uh, patients come in and ask for medicines that would be costing them uh, costing them $1,000 or $2,000. Uh, and uh, they used to beg my father that, can I give you the money uh, in, uh, in, in 10 or 12 different installments? Uh, because I don't have the money and it's a, it's a medicine for cancer. It's a medicine for uh, a very serious disease uh, where they wouldn't be able to afford it. Now, you see, what, you, you can imagine the kind of indelible impression this would have left on me when this was that time when I was 10 years old uh, or so. Um, and that's really when I picked it up um, and, and I kind of realized that healthcare is my calling, right? Um, and uh, not goes without saying when your grandfather was a registered pharmacist, your father was running a pharmacy chain, uh, it, it was very evident uh, that I had to do something in healthcare. So the funny story is I actually registered and I actually enrolled for a dental studies. I wanted, I was going to become a dentist uh, in India. Um, I went to university uh, for two weeks. I dropped off uh, as a dentist and I enrolled myself as a pharmacist. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so I, it, it is destiny. It is destiny. I'm telling Was you. that the plan all along or did something about dentistry really not agree with you? No, it, it was, it, it was really, um, uh, I, I don't know what went into me after two weeks in dentistry. I just felt that, uh, pharmacy would be much closer to, uh, to, to helping, patients in, in real need versus uh, fixing people's teeth, right? And, uh, and, and I, I just felt that you could learn a lot more uh, in, uh, in real world uh, with that. And I have seen my family in pharmacies and uh, pharmacy degrees uh, all throughout. So I just felt I was close to it. Um, and as I said, I always felt healthcare was my calling, treating mm. patients and supporting patients uh, in some way or the other, uh, had to be uh, there. So, uh, long story short, I became a registered pharmacist in India. Uh, post which, I moved to the UK, not not very far from where you are, James. Uh, <laughs> I, I did my uh, masters in Kingston University, uh, and uh, I trained myself as a medicinal chemist. Uh, my research was in breast cancer. Um, specifically in a pathway called aromatase inhibitors. Um, I synthesized a few compounds in the lab. And at that time, uh, when I synthesized those compounds, uh, I had a discussion with uh, a few people in the university about, can I actually take these drugs uh, into a spin-off? Um, and you just realize at that time that, that there's a stark difference between 
what happens in the lab versus what comes out of the lab and in the real world setting. Yeah. Right? And, and I, I just felt that I had to find a solution uh, for that some way or the other. Uh, but that's where I realized one thing that if I have to do something and if I have to make a very strong impact in this world, I just don't want to take the plunge without understanding the tricks of the trade. Um, so I basically started right from the bottom of the uh, pyramid. Um, I, uh, I started as a proposal developer in a clinical CR, a clinical research organization. And, and the reason why I felt the proposal development was an interesting uh, opportunity uh, was it just helped me understand every, every part of a drug development journey, right? Uh, and, uh, and, and it just allowed me to train myself with that sharp eye, be patient, all the qualities that you think uh, an entrepreneur might need, the, the enthusiasm, which I, I felt I never had shortage of. Uh, at any given point of time. But setting up a biotech company and running a biotech company is something that was not that was not something that just came one fine day while I was working. Um, I can tell you uh, that running a biotech company was just a natural progression from where I saw my grandfather, uh, where I saw my father, uh, and uh, where I am right now, right? So I, I just felt it had to be. Uh, and I actually remember having this conversation with my father when I was uh, when I was 18 years old. I told him, I'm going to train myself for a few years and I'm going to set up my own biotech company. Um, and he thought I was, I was just joking at that time. Um, and uh, here you go. Uh, fast forward a few years, uh, I officially took the plunge uh, in year 2018, uh, to set up all biosciences. Um, and, uh, the initial thought process was really around, uh, you know, the significant gap that exists, uh, in the university research, uh, the biotech company research, and even pharma companies, they tend to deprioritize a lot of their assets, not because of any other reasons, but mainly for strategic reasons and for financial reasons. Um, as well. Uh, so I decided I'll, I'll, se I'll set up own biosciences, start off with a few assets, a few clinic, a few, few clinical stage molecules in the company. Uh, and uh, uh, it's been around about three and a half years. Uh, we have significantly grown um, close to four programs in our portfolio. Uh, and uh, we will definitely talk more about it, James. This has been a phenomenal journey. And if you ask me Amazing. today, if I would repeat this 100 times, <laughs> I would totally do this. I would totally do this. Keep on doing it <laughs> uh, and, and keep on doing it. Well, that's good to hear. And, and I guess congratulations is the first thing I would say. I mean, it, it's obviously a great journey that you've been on and one that starts right back when with your grandfather and your inspiration at 10 years old. It's a really nice story. My first question is, well, it's actually to just a point of note. You talk about, you talked about taking the plunge, but you also talked about understanding the, uh, the, the plunge pool you're about to dive into. I think that's a really interesting element. I think a conversation that I have a lot on this podcast is about entrepreneurs and whether they're born or whether they're mm -hmm. made. And I think in part, 
you can have qualities that you're born with that make you or give you a greater affinity to entrepreneurship. That doesn't necessarily mean that you will end mm. up in entrepreneurship. But similarly, there are skills and there there is knowledge and there are things that I believe you can learn to make you an entrepreneur if perhaps you're not blessed with, you know, the 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 skills to get you there without mm-hmm. learning it. If, if you will, for, you know, for want of a better way of phrasing it. And I think I similarly fall into the latter mm-hmm. with you. Like I had to learn certain things. And it's interesting to me that you, you took the job that you did, a proposal developer in a CRO, because you would understand the entire drug discovery journey. And it, that, you know, that being a very conscious step. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, it's just an interesting point to note, I think, for people listening, that you don't have to just know this stuff and i was so hot on asking people all the time like how did you actually do that how did you actually start the company what when did the idea to come to you and all the rest of it and another point i liked about what you said was that you didn't just get this light bulb moment you know three pints deep in oceana in kingston you know this (laughs) idea just comes to you and all of a sudden you're now going to raise a load of money and you're going to have a company it just doesn't work like that it was you know as you say it was a natural progression of doing one thing then another then another and then realizing that the next stage to make the impact is to start this thing called a limited company which allows you to raise capital and allows you to deploy it and then all of a sudden you can solve a problem using this thing Again, it's something that I can relate to, you know, just going bit by bit, acquiring this skill, acquiring this knowledge, and then ultimately you find yourself with this company that you can then go and make impact through. And I think that's the most important thing as well. Like, it's not about just being an entrepreneur because it's cool or being an entrepreneur because you want to call yourself an entrepreneur. In the day, you're out here trying to solve a problem, right? You've spotted a problem that needs solving, and it just so happens you do that through being an entrepreneur. And I think that... That, that tends to be often, I think, what I see separating a lot of, you know, experienced multi-company entrepreneurs is that they just find these problems to solve and they, they don't necessarily define themselves on it. I think that's the thing. And I'm certainly hearing it, hearing that with you. You're, imp- you know, impact driven as many of my guests are, if not yeah. all my guests are. But it sounds like you've, you've, as you said at the start, right, found your calling through both, I think, the sector that you're in and the role that you have mm-hmm. as, dare I say, an entrepreneur. I mean, talk to me about that. Talk, it, it, does that resonate with you? No, it, it definitely does, right? I think there's four key words that I always uh, keep close to uh, my heart. First things first, being an entrepreneur, uh, a lot of people might think it's so fancy and, and it's so uh, uh, so amazing to hear that, that, oh, I'm an entrepreneur, right? I, I think the, the four words that I would like to uh, summarize uh, that are key uh, for any individual, does not matter who, uh, who he or she is, um, uh, it, the first one is skills. Um, you, are, you are born with what you have, right? Uh, you, you, every, every human being has a intrinsic skill that they just have to identify with. Right. Um, so, so skill is something that is very, very important and it develops over time. Right. I, I, I say this to a few of my employees that, uh, if you observe a tiger, uh, or a lion, uh, a tiger before taking a prowl always takes one step back uh, because he or she knows uh, that um, he has to he has to prey on someone uh, but he does not want to make a hasty decision 
and otherwise he might he might have to stay he or she might have to stay hungry uh, for that night. But th- that's the point I was trying to make on the skill. Uh, the second word I would like to uh, I resonate with what you said is the knowledge. Knowledge is not something you are born with. Knowledge is something that you gather over a period of time. And and I actually say this to my six-year-old son um, uh, quite often, uh, that there is no better school than life, right? If you want to learn uh, something, the first thing you have to learn is how to fail. Um, and the more you fail, the more you get better. The more you succeed from the very beginning, um, you will you will be a bit a, bit, a little bit relaxed uh, on that. So learn how to fail, and dust yourself and get up. Right. So knowledge uh, of a certain craft is very very key. The third point I'd like to highlight on that is people. Um, you can't do things alone. I've learned this uh, in in uh, all my life that. The more you empower people, the, the more you surround yourself with the right people. Uh, and the, it's amazing how uh, you start getting uh, better at things uh, that, that you don't know, right? So it's more like I complement my weaknesses with their strengths uh, in there. And, and the last and the most important thing is passion. Um, what keeps you awake uh, at night, at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., if you have to wake up at 2 a.m. in the morning, what is that thing? Um, and James, I am really proud to say that uh, even though uh, we have just closed our series A, which we'll talk about later, um, I still wake up in the morning at 4 a.m. in the morning and I feel, have I done enough work uh, today or not, Right. Uh, and and the reason behind that is the passion that I want to make a big impact in this world uh, by developing a oncology drug that really helps the patient at the end of the day. There is no better kick in life than actually being part of a journey where you actually have a drug that is being taken from preclinical all the way to commercialization and the patients would actually benefit from it. So just thinking about that, just thinking about those four points, uh, I don't know if you agree with me or not, James, but this is something which I would just take with me uh, throughout, right? Is that passion. You need to have that passion. I, I want, if somebody calls me at 3 a.m. in the morning, I don't want to tell them, hey, you know, let me sleep. Tell me what needs to be resolved and we will get it done, right? Um, there is enough time to sleep when you are 65, 70 years old, so... Uh, why do that now uh, if, if you can really make a difference in the world? So, yeah, that's those are my two cents, uh, James, if I may say that. Uh, no, I, I do agree. I do agree, and I love it. You know, knowledge, skills, passion, and people, especially the passion and people bit. You know, when you were talking then about, you know, what would you get up at two in the morning and go and do? It would be a mixture of those two things for me. I've always enjoyed teaching. I've always enjoyed educating. I've always enjoyed helping others, but in that really kind of close, right. you know, short feedback of helping another in- individual do something. You know, that's in part why I enjoyed a lot of elements of clinical medicine. That that kind of you know, you're helping one other person, yeah. and in part you are an educator Correct. when you're a clinician as well, particularly you know in many specialties. Right. Um, but I also really enjoy teaching medicine, all, all that sort of stuff, right? Well, so very the people and the passion yeah. that I get, and I know that that is ultimately my calling and since 
my business, since Somex has grown and we're now supporting, what, 14 health tech clients now? Wow. We've grown a team. So we have wow. juniors and we have more senior people yeah. and we have graphic designers and we have video editors. And we have videographers, like all these different people now. And I enjoy problem solving together. Mm. I know I know, I like that. Mm. And I think it's, it's funny, like the passion now for initially was to solve one problem and now it's to do different things there's multiple problems on problems right. now to solve but i get to do that with passion and people like you were saying and so yes it resonates massively and i love no, it's it great. um okay. and so yeah i wouldn't mind if if to solve problems at 2am so i absolutely agree with you but i want to hear more about um i want to hear more about orm now orm biosciences and i want to i want to i ask a lot of people this about when did you get the idea? And you've told me it was, you know, somewhat a natural progression, but turning an idea into an initial reality, you've mentioned that you're a series A now, but pre-seed, prototypes, seed raise, going from seed series A, talk to me about the early journey. And if you can, as practical as possible, what did you actually do? Because for a lot of people listening will think, you know, starting a biotech company, that is for other people. I don't know how to do that. I don't even know what's involved. That's what a lot of people will be thinking. So t- nuts and bolts, from an idea to reality, let's talk about it. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, I, I guess just to put a caveat on that, uh, that I am a first-time entrepreneur. So what I'm going to tell you, uh, even though I've worked with different companies, that journey that I'm going to tell you is going to be something that I've lived every single day uh, of my life, right? So it it really <laughs> starts. It really Amazing. starts from a time uh, when uh, when I started spending, uh, say, a couple of hours. Uh, as I told you, I'm in Singapore. I live very close to the beach uh, over here. Um, and, uh, I, I found a bench on, on the beach, uh, in Singapore, uh, and I spent six months on that bench, uh, James, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and I used to come at, I used to go to that, uh, bench 9am in the morning, sit until 5.30, 6pm, 6, 6 uh, in the evening, uh, Starbucks was there, uh, became my friend, um, over there as well. And I did that for six months. Uh, to go to the nuts and bolts, what I did, it took me a couple of months to write a thorough business plan. Um, and intentionally, what I did was I actually gave that to some of my network that I had. I actually gave the business plan to two investment bankers. I gave that business plan to my uh, lawyers' uh, friends. I gave the business plan to a couple of industry experts I knew. And I told them, you know what? I don't want to hear good things of this present day, of this business plan. Uh, poke as many holes as you can in this business plan, right? Um, and uh, what the feedback I got from them uh, really made the company uh, where it was from day one, right? Um, and and again, uh, understanding the the uh, points where I could fail. Uh, was much more helpful than understanding the points where I could succeed, right? Uh, there's there's enough people that would follow you if you are successful, but there's very few people that will follow you if you are a failure, right? Um, so I, I, I sat down with those guys. I told them to give me a list of breakdowns of uh, uh, all the points that, uh, that would cause a potential failure uh, to this business plan. Uh, and I took that feedback on board. 
Um, one thing I can tell you uh, during this journey was always keep your ears open. Uh, as my mother used to tell me this, hmm. uh, God has given you two ears, one mouth for a reason. Listen more, talk less, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so, Excellent. so I, I, I use that, um, and, uh, simple things like that. Right. Um, and uh, once that whole business plan was ready, uh, I, I sat down and said, okay, now we need to start gathering a few people around, uh, sat down with my family, um, uh, my, uh, wife, as you can imagine, the decision was very important as well. Uh, so sat down with my wife, sat down with my family. And, um, my God, having a supportive family changes the perception on the mm-hmm. plunge you want to take. Right. And especially this was not a small plunge, mm-hmm. right? Uh, my, uh, my seed round was $1.5 million. Um, my, uh, follow on rounds were also there, but this just to get that seed money, um, was very crucial, uh, to start off with that. Right. Uh, and, uh, just that quick question to jump in, sorry, on the, um, on the business plan that you wrote, mm-hmm. what was the idea at that point? What was the, what was the, just the initial framework at that point, the problem you were solving and your solution? What was that? So the problem was what I told you earlier. There's a lot of science which is sitting in universities, biotech companies, and even big pharma companies yeah. uh, that do not make it to the market, not for scientific reasons, but mainly for strategic and financial reasons. And you, and then the, the uh, problem okay. we were trying to solve was we don't want this science uh, to, be, uh, to be sitting on the shelf uh, and not get the patients. Right. Mm. So the initial strategy, and this still remains the current strategy, is we work with the big pharma companies, the biotech companies and universities to acquire the technology. And we have a core expertise in our company. And the core expertise is taking the drug from preclinical all the way to clinical proof of concept. And that's where the maximum failure happens. Right. Um, The just to give you some percentages. Between clinical, uh, between preclinical and clinical proof of concept, uh, on an average, it's an eight percent success rate, right? Um, so, if we were to increase wow. that eight percent success rate to thirty percent, just by the sheer size of eight percent to thirty percent, you are talking about a massive change in how many drugs can actually be made, uh, mm-hmm. taken to the market, but more importantly, how much money you could save. In that whole life cycle where a company says they spend close to $2 billion to develop a drug, uh, just by changing that 8% to 30%, you're talking about a significant change in the amount of monies that will be needed to actually develop that part of it, right? And I often say this to a lot Mm -hmm. of people, uh, James, that what the pricing that you see in uh, in, in the market right now it's not necessarily pricing that a pharma company puts in as a cost of success only, right? It's, it's basic economics. It's cost of success plus cost of failure uh, in factored uh, into it, right? Absolutely. So the one way of changing that is uh, you reduce cost of success uh, and you reduce cost of failure, right? So the business model was really around that, that we take drugs at late preclinical or we take a, acquire these technologies, 
take it until a registration enabling package, and then we give it to a big pharma company and we tell them, you know, this package is ready to go. We know mm. you have great commercial capabilities. Yeah, please, and the hard yeah, yards. please go and commercialize these yeah. drugs, right? So that was the business model. Got and it. That's that's where we we feel the sweet spot Got it. is uh, for the company as well. Got it. When you say that there was, you know, it might not go forward for not for scientific reasons, but for strategic and financial reasons. What are they? What are examples of those reasons? So I'll give you, uh, I'll give you a uh, example, not a specific company or anyone, but I'll give you an example. Um, sure, sure, sure. A, a public company, a publicly listed company, has certain financial limitations on how much they can show on their balance sheet in terms of the R&D expenditure. Okay? Um, if you show yes. less, that's a problem. If you show more, that's a problem. Uh, so the the ratio of <laughs> the ratio yeah. of revenues to an R and D expenditure is always uh, scrutinized by all the retail investors and so on. Um, and uh, the the second reason is oftentimes because the science is advancing so fast, right? Um, in twenty twenty one, if the flavor of the season was mRNA. Uh, which is where, which is what everybody is interested in. You never know. In 2023, the flavor of the season might be some completely different, something completely different. Talking about cell, cell, cell therapies, right. gene editing. The, the science keeps on growing, right? Right. Um, and because the science keeps on growing, the the other molecules which were in development by these pharma companies take a backseat. Right, so they always everybody wants to be at the cutting edge uh, of the development. So, couple of Got examples it. that come to my mind uh, on that, um, and it it just helps you to understand that the does not mean the science is bad. It's just sometimes the strategic direction of the company changes or the financials of the company look different as well. Right, so couple of examples just to give you an understanding. That's awesome. Yeah, I completely understand. So it's just a case of obviously the pharma companies wanting to stay on or divert their attention to where the opportunity has, is at its maximum. But there's obviously a lot of work that's gone into the things that the attention has been diverted from. Correct. So why not pick those Correct. up at their level of maturity, Correct. take them through those hard yards, reduce the risk yeah. to those pharma companies, which is why their attention has mm -hmm. been diverted because it's not a sure mm -hmm. thing. But if you then go through that, you can then present those that are likely to be successful back to oh, them. Oh, absolutely. And you've done that filtering process for them, basically, and taken that hard yard. Correct. Um, fantastic idea. Yeah. Fantastic business model. That What a wonderful bench to spend your time on. You must look very fondly at that oh, bench uh, when I you do. walk past I it do. now. I actually have a tradition. Have you got a plaque on that no. bench? This is, this is where <laughs> Vishal sat. <laughs> I have a tradition that every employee that joins the company in Singapore uh, – I take them to uh, to that bench uh, to visit uh, as well, just to so just nice. to show them that That's this so was nice. the bench where I wrote my business plan. So I'm not sure until when the Singapore government is going to keep Amazing. the bench uh, or not. Uh, until it's there, I will keep <laughs> on showing it to my employees. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. I might start taking my employees to, to the one-bedroom flat in, in Wakebridge yeah. where I thought of <laughs> You'd be surprised oh, how inspiring Funny. they would be, you know? 
Um, uh, the, well, you never, you never know. <laughs> I can't see that ever being a tourist attraction. However, I think your bench might be with the with the route that yeah. you're on. Um, however, moving on. Um, so, raising seed money, 1.5 million. It's a pretty big seed round, although not in biotech, I imagine, <laughs> um, given that one of our clients already just raised 100 million yeah. um, for cell engine therapy stuff. But seed to Series A, right? So... Um, what did you have to prove? You know, thinking of your business model now, you know, you've got to be able to pick these molecules quite well yourself. If you pick, you know, five or six that don't work and you pour all this resource in and you don't get to the end of it, then you're going to struggle, right? But you must have picked some winners. You must have been able to prove the business model, um, which now you're approaching or have raised a Series A? What stage are you at We now? have just raised a Series A in uh, October last year uh, of, uh, of an amount of 27 million US dollars. Uh, and uh, we're actually quite proud nice. to bring in uh, a private equity fund out of Singapore. Uh, and uh, the group is called Everlife. Uh, and uh, along with that, there is uh, mm-hmm. one more VC fund called Sprim Global Ventures uh, as well. Uh, so Series A mm. uh, is just the beginning, I would say. Uh, as they say, when you raise more money, uh, the investors expect more money uh, to to be uh, made, right? Uh, so, so this is, I would say, this is mm. a great uh, step forward uh, to to the uh, uh, success. Uh, I, for me, the what's the the satisfying thing is. Uh, it's the validation, uh, the hard work of the last three and a half years. Yeah, um, uh, it gives us validation uh, for the first round of funding, uh, and uh, the mm-hmm. other part really is what's going to happen in the next twenty-four months. And we'll talk about that, James, uh, if uh, at a certain point, if you wish to. Uh, but what the Series A has done is it has put us on a pedestal now. Uh, to to really start mm. planning on where we want to be and the direction we want to take as a company in the next 24 to 20, 30 months time uh, as well. So very, very exciting time. Very exciting time. It's, it sounds it, certainly. I do have a question, and it's one of these questions. Mm-hmm. I've been in I've been in health tech for a while, and obviously biotech is adjacent, I would say, to, to sort of digital mm-hmm. health and health tech, but certainly inclusive with a broad definition. Biotech companies raise lots of money. And in part, you know, clinical trials are expensive. I get that. But, you know, a Series A in health tech, you wouldn't really blink at sort of a, te- I don't know, 10 million. You'd be like, okay, mm-hmm. that's a good Series A. Obviously, 27, what you're doing, a Series B might be 20 in health tech. It's 100 in biotech. Mm-hmm. When a company such as yours raises a Series A of 27 million, what happens next? Where does that money go? Because the the... There's just more zeros, or certainly higher, higher digits in in biotech. And are you growing massive teams? Are you putting that more into clinical? Tra- I mean, where where does the money go in a biotech company such as yours when you raise such an amount? Yeah, so so it basically goes into three things, and and I call this as three P's: um, uh, product, uh, people, and process. Right. Um, as I said, growing from a seed company to a Series A company uh, is is a big shift uh, in in the journey of the company. Mm. Um, so uh, when you start thinking of uh, where does the money goes in, first definitely product. Uh, in biotech, data is king. 
right? Um, if, mm. if we have the right amount of data uh, that we can show to the rest of the world or to the prospective investors, it just keeps on adding up uh, to, to the progress of the company. Mm. So product, definitely. People, uh, just because the sheer size of the operations grows a little bit, um, and and the geography is slightly different, right? Because a clinical trial is not one country trial or a or a two country trial. Sometimes yes. these are global Good trials uh, as well. So you have to get you have to get people in different geographies uh, as well. And then the process. Uh, what you did as a seed company might not work for a sophisticated institutional investors um, to come in, where you have to start thinking of various processes to be put together. Uh, in place, right? So uh, things like um, uh, change, potentially changing the auditors you work with, right? Uh, getting your ESOPs uh, in plan. I mean, some simple, simple things like that, right? Getting your uh, committee mm -hmm. set up. Uh, so much more that goes into it, but it's more professionalizing the setting uh, versus yes. what it was a seed, seed stage company. So is the expectations that come along with an institutional round uh, that that uh, that makes it in there. Uh, but I would say 70% to 75% of the cost uh, of the raise uh, typically goes in clinical development. If it's not, that's a concern. Mm -hmm. But I would doubt that the institutional right. investors would allow that to happen if it's not going uh, in clinical development. So, yeah, that's that's where it is. That's where it is. Understood. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and sort of the numbers work out then, you know, from 10 to 30, yeah, 70% going to that stuff. Yeah, it works. I get it. Yeah. Um, so the next 24 months then, you mentioned, uh, mm -hmm. do you set goals? Do you have targets? What do you need to do before Series B? Yeah, what would be life without targets, huh? <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, yeah, so... No, I yes. The answer is yes. Uh, we we do set goals, we do set targets, uh, and uh, what do we have to do before Series B? Um, in in a biotech setting, uh, typically uh, it really depends on the the growth journey that a company takes. Uh, it's not uh, it's not sequential that you do a series A, wait for two to three years and do a series B. That's an option that some companies yeah. might have. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's about growth, right? Uh, and, the, and the business mm. model that we have, uh, it's not dependent on success of one molecule. That's why the name of the company is OM. And uh, there is a wordplay with the name. It's AUM, which is Assets Under Management, right? Uh, and uh, mm. the the wordplay around that is intentional in the sense that we will we are not a one molecule company. Uh, we want to have a portfolio yes. of drugs uh, where even if we hit a, a fifty percent success rate, which by the way we have a track record of doing, right? Uh, if we hit mm. a fifty percent success rate, that's already six to seven times higher than the industry average, right? Um, mm. but we, we, we would like to be in a situation where, uh, where post now that we have done with a series A, we are, uh, planning to, uh, we are planning to raise our series B, uh, and, uh, and that series B will allow us to grow the company and scale the company. Right. Uh, so, yeah. so th now, now the phase is more about 
making the company even more scalable. So scale it to a different mm. um, uh, size now, um, but not forgetting what we have, the core strengths of the company uh, that, that we have right now. So uh, I would say uh, as a Series B, um, it would be continuing the development of our current programs, acquiring new technologies, uh, signing on new partnerships, uh, and creating that portfolio, uh, as I would like to call it, um, just the same way a, a stock portfolio happens. You'd never want to bet all your money on one one uh, uh, stock, right? Uh, so similar approach, uh, not rocket science in there. And, and that's how we go. And for the next 24 months, James, um, uh, we do we do have a we do have a goal. Uh, ideally, we would like to uh, be in a situation uh, where uh, we would like to prepare for uh, some form of a uh, liquidity event uh, coming through. Um, and mm. this is again unlike a lot of biotech companies where uh, people have to sit on the uh, investment for five years, seven years. We are a very, very interesting company right now with clinical stage assets, with a management team that's, which has a fantastic track record, with an institutional round of investment done already. We have big pharma partnerships already signed. Uh, we have a revenue generating mechanism put together in place. Uh, it's just amazing what we have done in the last three and a half, three and a half years. And I feel really proud of that. So next 24 months is going to be very, very crucial. Uh, for the company's next phase of growth where we are uh, right now. So I am looking mm. forward to it. I'm looking forward to four hours of sleep every day. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> it sounds super exciting. I, I think whether or not the listeners will find this bit exciting, I just find your business model really interesting. And, and mm-hmm. one quick question on that, whether this makes the edit or not depends on if everybody thinks it's horrendously boring. But asset, assets under management, it's, it's, it's interesting. So when you've, te- you've bought the drug... Um, mm-hmm. or you've bought it where it's at in its clinical development, you've bought the asset, mm-hmm. you've then matured that asset and got an, an increased the value of that asset by taking it mm-hmm. through the drug, dis- uh, the, the clinical trial journey, et cetera, et cetera. Are you then, are you, do you then retain ownership and then license something back or do you sell part of it and keep some ownership? And is that how the portfolio is growing? I mean, what, how, what does your balance sheet look like then? Do you have these kind of assets continually? And is that how you're kind of hoping the exit is someone just buys the portfolio? Is that the model? So it can either be a portfolio buyout uh, or somebody who is interested in individual molecules, right? Uh, an ideal situation right. in the event of an individual molecule is you don't want to keep regional rights to yourself. You probably want to just give out the whole thing to a pharma company and say, please yeah, go and commercialize fine. this because I really want to see this yeah, drug fine. go to the patients, right? Um, fine. And uh, yeah, so that's how it, but important thing is it becomes a revenue generating mechanism. I, we, someone can use that capital to reinvest it into, into business uh, as well, right? Precisely, so you keep yeah. on generating okay, that. So uh, because I think you might like numbers, so I'm going to give you some numbers. Uh, if you if a f- typical phase one study costs around about four million dollars, three to four million dollars. Yeah. A phase two study, depending on the size of it, if it's 110 patients studying oncology, it might cost you around about 25 to 30 million dollars. I'm talking about small molecules, mm. or sometimes in the case of large molecules, 
uh, about non-in-cell therapies and gene therapy. So in the range of 20 to $25 mm. million, dollars, we're talking about uh, mm. phase two studies, right? Just by mere spending, say, $30 million um, on an average, uh, the average deal value at the exit of a phase three ready asset um, has is anywhere between 2.1 to 2.3 billion dollars, right? Yeah. Um, so it just yeah. shows you the the value of de-risking is very very high uh, because that's the phase which is phase one and phase. And if two. you've then got a 50 percent success rate, right? <laughs> I mean- exactly, exactly. You are you are you are singing multiple songs over there, right? <laughs> uh, so so yeah, no. I think the important part is really use your intellectual capital to the maximum uh, on that. Right? Yes. And be creative. Creativity is uh, is very, very crucial uh, on that as well. So, mm. yeah, it's, it's definitely numbers game uh, on that. So, yeah. That's awesome. And I guess the final th- the thing I want to finish with here is obviously the, the, Im- the impact piece as well, because as you mentioned near the beginning, that kick that you're going to get from seeing oncology drugs, for example, actually hit the market that would never have done so had you not have done this. I mean, you can never say never, different entrepreneur, mm-hmm. different mechanism, mm-hmm. 10 years time perhaps, but the point is you being in control of a process whereby this undiscovered thing became discovered and then found its way into manufacturing and then eventually found its way into patients, you know, killing off tumors. I mean. It, it, it's 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 a strangely kind of grandiose thing to say you're very much part of, but it must actually feel that way. Like you must actually have to catch yourself sometimes and go, hold on a minute, like we guys, team, look, look what we actually did here. Yeah. Um, must be cool. <laughs> no. uh, it is very cool. It is very cool, but it's very difficult. That's why it's very cool. Yeah. Fisher, honestly, it's been it's it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure having you on. I think the, I mean, just from the impact piece, right? What you're doing is so valuable. Um, but I've really enjoyed the 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 story that you told in the journey. I think it's it's nice it's nice to get real with people. And um, for people that are based in, we do have listeners in Singapore. Um, for the listeners uh-huh. in Singapore, where's the where's the bench? <laughs> okay, so that's on the East Coast Park. Uh, in a place called Parkland Green, uh, and that's where the Starbucks is. Uh, so it's just opposite Love Starbucks. It. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There so you go. If there are any listeners that want to go and take a photo of that bench for me and send it me, I would be massively appreciative, and that will find its way into my LinkedIn content <laughs> <laughs> advertising. Well, this I can send it to so you if you want. I would. I'd love I, a photo. I go for a walk. Oh, if you could, morning, perfect. If you Perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, amazing. Every morning. Please do, yeah, please yeah. do. That'd be that'd be nice. And then I can write Definitely. a little little story on it for LinkedIn. Um, sure, sure. But no, that's that's awesome. And as I say, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure having you on. I think it's as I say, it's great to great to get real with people and and how this stuff actually works out. I've I think the thing that I'm taking away from this, frankly, is understanding how how biotech companies <laughs> function once they raise money. Like it's nice to know that seventy percent of expenses go to. Um, go to all that stuff and, and, and the rest goes to the, uh, the more operational side that that's something I've not really had the chance to ask anyone yet. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, 
uh, yeah, oh, I've loved it, mate. Thank you so much for coming on. So before I let you go, Vishal, um, for anybody that wants to get in touch with you or to learn more about uh, Orm Biosciences, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Sure. So they can reach me on uh, my email address. Uh, it's uh, vforvic. Do you want me to say the whole email address, uh, James? Uh, yeah, just if you say it, it's easier. Yeah, just say it. Yeah, so it's uh, so they, sure they can reach me on uh, my email address. Uh, uh, it's uh, vishalb at aumbiosciences.com. Perfect. Vishal, thank you very much. Thank you, James. It was a pleasure. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.